come to our key text today, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 10. And our key word is unity. If any of the young people would like, or anybody would like to keep track of how many times I say the word unity in this message, you better, you better uh, have your pencil sharpened because it's gonna show up a lot. So if you'd like, let's stand for the reading of God's word. 1 Corinthians chapter one, we're just gonna read verse 10. And then we'll go on to the other parts later. Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. Let us pray. Lord, we ask that you would open our eyes to see the wonderful truth that you provide in this passage and in the others that support it. Lord, may we come away from this service today with a special, deeper appreciation for how much we desperately need your word and your spirit to allow us to be of one mind and one heart, one testimony. And Lord, we ask these things in the mighty name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. Now, when we look at the broad sweep of the first chapter, first uh, letter of Paul to the Corinthian church, we can see that Corinth had a whole lot of problems. First of all, we see that they had errors regarding division, as we're going to look at today. And that is actually addressed in chapter 1, verse 10, all the way through to chapter 4 and verse 21. And then beginning in chapter 5 and verse 1 through chapter 6 and verse 20, Paul deals with errors regarding uh, immorality in the church. And then in chapter 7, he addresses errors regarding marriage. In chapter 8, in verse 1, through chapter 11, in verse 1, we find errors regarding Christian liberty. In chapter 11, we see errors regarding the Lord's table addressed. In chapters 12 through 14, we see errors regarding spiritual gifts addressed. In chapter 15, we see errors regarding the resurrection. In chapter 16, we see errors regarding the handling of money. That's a lot of problems. I mean, we think we got it bad. This is pretty serious. All of these errors, all addressed in one uh, one letter to the church in Corinth. But of all of these errors, Immorality, marriage, Christian liberty, the Lord's table, spiritual gifts, the resurrection, and money. The top of Paul's list was the lack of unity within the church. So why would that be? Well, I think we find our answer in the fact that the unity of the church, in the church, 
is how the world will know that the Heavenly Father sent Jesus into the world. Jesus tells us this himself in John chapter 17, in verse 20 through 23, in his high priestly prayer, speaking to God, he says, I do not pray for these alone, these disciples that I have at this moment, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you gave me, I have given them, that they may be one, just as we are one, I in them, and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Now this is a very, very deep and very spiritual passage. And following the grammar of what Jesus is saying to his Father in this prayer is very important. Because Jesus is revealing something that uh, we often kind of pass over as though it's just some kind of mystical thing. But it is not mystical. It's the reality. This is what it means for us to be saved. For us to be a member of the body of Christ. For us to have new hearts, new spirits. To be born again. All of that is captured in what Jesus is saying here about the Heavenly Father being in us with Jesus and the Holy Spirit. And we are one in Him. And by being one in Him, we are also one with one another. So Jesus has given to us the same glorious Holy Spirit that made Him one with the Father while He was living in this world as a man. And so Jesus and the Father now live in us by that same Holy Spirit. This is a spiritual reality. Okay? It's no less real than the physical reality we can reach out and touch. But it is a spiritual reality that under supports, that, that, that supports everything in the Christian life. And so we read again, we are called to unity. Now let's read this passage again and think about the implications. Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but you you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. Now before we go too far, I want to just make some reference to this phrase, the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, because this is an area that, you know, is often misunderstood. I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. What does that mean? Well, whenever we see this reference to the name of the Lord, it represents all that that the Lord is and all that he wills. It is, it is a reference 
to him and in his lordship. Now, when we pray in the name of Jesus or in the name of Christ, it means that we are to pray in ways that are consistent with who Christ is and what we know to be his will. It doesn't mean what it often is used as. It doesn't mean that you ask whatever you want and then say, in Jesus' name. The whole idea is is that by praying in Jesus' name, you are attempting to pray what you believe to be his will. You're not praying for just what you want. You're praying for what you believe to be his will. And if you're not sure, you can say, if it be thy will. But the whole idea of saying, in Jesus' name, amen, is not to put a little, you know, stamp on your prayer or, you know, and send it in the mail. It is a matter of bringing it into line with what you understand to be the will of the Lord. And so it means, I pray this because I believe it is consistent with the will of Christ as I understand it. And we should put some effort into understanding the will of the Lord and in praying accordingly so that our prayers are, are not only requesting something from God, but also adjusting our own heart, mind, uh, in relationship to God. So Paul is saying, I plead with you to do what I know to be consistent with the will of Jesus Christ for your lives. That's, that's what this introductory statement means. Now the context for Paul's plea is disunity. And so he makes reference in chapter 1 and verse 11 to something that has been reported to him from the household of Cleo. It says, For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Cleo's household, that there are contentions among you. Now I say this, that each of you says, I am of Paul, or I am of Apollos, or I am of Cephas, or I am of Christ. So there are parties being developed within the church in Corinth. People are choosing their hero and joining that team. There's something about being a part of a team or being the fan of a particular hero, whether it's in sports or politics or or, uh, culture, other, it, it appeals to us. It gives us a sense of belonging. Uh, it, it gives us something to occupy our thoughts. You know, when we're not actually doing other important work, then we can be following our favorite ball team. You know, I had a recent, I didn't get to go to the game, but some of the guys that we meet with went up to watch the uh, Mariners play in Seattle. And they were very enth- and excited about that and enthused and and it was quite an event, huge, huge uh, ball stadium, baseball stadium there. And all the money and all the effort, all the time that goes into just that one area of team sports. What is it about that that appeals to us? And it could be soccer. It could be, you know, it could be a, poli- a political party or a movement or, or an enthusiast about a particular author. You know, I am of John Piper. Okay, I can say that. I I love his work. But you see, this type of thinking 
is having a pro is creating a problem within the church. People are not walking in unity. They're becoming uh, advocates for a particular person who has been a ministry, had a ministry in their lives there in Corinth. Now, Paul's answer to this disunity is found in the gospel itself. And he makes reference to this when he says, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? And so the, the gospel itself offers us this unified story of Jesus. So it is who Christ is and what he has accomplished for his father by redeeming us. And I, I phrase it that way because sometimes we put ourselves into the center of the story like, Jesus loved me, he came for me, he died for me. And all of that is true, but he did all of this for the Father. The Father has chosen to save some, and Jesus has agreed to come and die for the sins of those the Father has chosen. And there's no wasted effort here. There's no extra, you know, anything, there's nothing that is uh, unused. The grace of God that is offered to us in Christ is entirely successful. No one will be missing from the marriage supper of the Lamb. We will all be there. And so we have this gospel of what Christ, who he is, God the Son, what he has accomplished for the Father by redeeming us with his own blood. And then the difference that that faith in him makes in our lives. That's the foundation for the unity of his church. When we stay focused on those things, it pulls us together. Rather than into a party spirit or a team spirit, it, it brings us to the basis for our gathering. We're here because of what he has done for us. We're here because of the gospel, the good news. Now, the issue of baptism set this disunity into motion as the relative greatness of each apostle or apostolic emissary came into their consideration. And so we see that in this statement. Each of you says, I am of Paul, or I am of Apollos, or I am of Cephas, or I am of Christ. Now, those who were in Paul's fan club uh, are saying Paul's the greatest. And we were, some of them are saying, and we were baptized by Paul. And he's the greatest apostle, so we're pretty special, and we got to be baptized by, by Paul himself. But others say, well, no, wait a minute now. What about Apollos? They're in Apollos' fan club. And he's the one who's mighty in the scriptures. you know. And we, we're going to see a reference here uh, to that in the next few chapters about this issue of being mighty uh, in various ways, then Paul raises the question as to whether something is carnal or whether something is spiritual. Not whether Apollos is carnal, but the idea of being too impressed with somebody's academic uh, abilities or their, their oratorical skills. And Paul wants us to be careful not to be caught up in that. And then we have 
I am of Cephas. Well, Cephas was the, you know, he's the one that Jesus said, upon this rock I will build my church. So to, to be in contact with the man, Peter, the head apostle, that's pretty special. And so he's got a fan club. And people are beginning to turn uh, and maybe even criticize the others in order to build up the, the glory and the honor of the one that they particularly identify with. And then there are those who tried to duck out of this controversy by saying, well, I am of Christ, as though Christ needed a fan club. Okay. Jesus is not one of the guys in the list. He's the Lord of the whole list. He's not on the list, okay? Let's put it that way. Jesus is not on the list. He's Lord of the list. And all of these other ministers of the gospel are there because Christ has saved them and called them and gifted them and sent them and now they're bearing fruit and so we can't say, well, I'm of Christ, I'm not of these guys, because these guys were sent by Christ. And they're to be respected for the roles that they have to play. Now Paul sees something here that the, the part of what is going on is that being baptized by the guy who is the head of your particular fan club would be a basis upon which to argue about who's the greatest. And so Paul says, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, lest anyone should say that I had baptized in my own name. That's the issue. None of these guys baptized in their own name. They were all there to baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit as the Great Commission requires. Nobody's there to uh, compete with one another in regard to how many they baptize. And so Paul says, I'm glad I didn't baptize anybody else. And then he thinks, oh yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. But besides that, I do not know whether I baptized any other. Now, this, I'm, this is a little bit of a uh, rabbit trail. But I, I want to just make the observation that when Paul says, oh yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus, but besides, I do not know whether I baptized any other. This reveals something of how the inspiration of the scriptures worked, okay? The apostles did not know everything, okay? When they put pen to paper or when they dictated and their, uh, their uh, assistant wrote down what they said, everything they wrote, everything they said that went into this, the, the letters was accurate, was true was without error, it was inerrant. But at the same time, they were not writing in a state of omniscience. They didn't know everything. They couldn't remember everything. They were writing, motivated, moved by the Holy Spirit 
to write these things, and what they wrote was absolutely true and inerrant. But at the same time, they were not writing as those who were in some kind of an omniscience uh, uh, trance, and they just knew everything about everything. They didn't. And that's why their personalities come through their writings. And nothing that they wrote was wrong. And at the same time, they were writing within the limited understanding that was given to them by the Holy Spirit to write what they wrote, to say what they said. Okay? So that's important. We're not dealing with demigods here. We're dealing with men moved by the Holy Spirit to write the scriptures. And so when Paul says, I do not know whether I baptized any other, he's telling the truth. He doesn't remember. But he knows that it's not important because he didn't come to baptize. So normally, new believers should be baptized normally by the elders of their own local church. Now, I'm perfectly fine with allowing whoever led this person to Christ to also assist in that baptism. Maybe to stand in the, in the water and, and assist in taking that person underwater and bringing them back up because they had a personal involvement in leading that person to Christ. It may be the father, father and mother, baptizing a child, but I believe that it's important to bring the officiality of the baptism uh, into place by the ministry of the elders or a deacon within the church. We see this in the scriptures. We see this in the New Testament. And I think that we need to be careful not to take it too far in the direction of being professional and official and not take it too far in the other direction of being too loosey-goosey and having, you know, one hippie baptize another. Uh, I think God honors the baptism that's done by faith. But he's also established leadership in his church. And so we can, we can bring these two together in a way that's harmonious. And so that's what I would recommend. But normally it'll be the elders of the local church who will practice the baptisms. Now, Paul's commission from Christ did not mention baptism. That's something we sometimes don't think about, but he did baptize. He's told us that he, he baptized the household of Stephanus. He baptized, baptized uh, Crispus and so on. But he tells us specifically, for Christ did not send me to baptize. And I can hear uh, people going, oh, Paul, what are you saying? The Great Commission says go and teach and baptize. And I believe Paul embraced that. But it was not his personal commission. Take a look. In Acts chapter 26, in verse 16, Paul is speaking to uh, King Agrippa. And he says, for, uh, he says, but rise and stand on your feet. This is what Jesus is saying to Paul when he's there on the road to Damascus. He says, but rise and stand on your feet. For I have appeared to you for this purpose, to make you a minister and a witness, both of the things which you have seen and of the things which I will yet reveal to you. I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God 
that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. There's no reference to baptism in this commission. And so Paul can honestly say, Christ did not send me particularly to baptize, although we see him baptizing converts as he goes uh, through the Mediterranean region there. So the Great Commission applies to Paul regardless of his personal uh, commission. It is merely a matter of where the emphasis is placed. And for Paul, the emphasis was upon preaching the gospel and teaching uh, the revelation that he had received from God, from Christ, uh, as an apostle. Now, Paul was commissioned primarily to preach the gospel. But his preaching was not without qualification. We see that in his next statement. He sent me to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. Now with this phrase, Paul is now going to launch into an extended treatise, doctrine, on the issue of human wisdom as opposed to God's wisdom. As a, he's going to be making a case for being truly spiritual as opposed to being carnal. And all of it is still part of the case of unity within the local church. Evidently, Paul sees the remedy, the real, ultimate, and long-lasting remedy to disunity within the body of Christ as being willing to let go of your human wisdom, merely human wisdom, and instead to embrace the wisdom that comes from God, a spiritual wisdom that goes beyond human reason. Now this is a, this is a deep, and you could call this meat, okay, of Scripture, because Paul is going to go on the attack here, and he's attacking our tendency to lean on our own understanding, which can feel very, very, very scary. <laughs> okay, so let's take a look. Paul's reference here to not preaching the gospel with the wisdom of words is an opening to his great doctrine concerning the only way to achieve and maintain unity in the body of Christ. So, perfect unity is unreasonable. Okay? And when I say unreasonable, I put that in quotes because the problem is we are trying to be too reasonable. And so we find ourselves dividing into camps based upon how my human wisdom conflicts with your human wisdom and both of us need to let go of our human wisdom and instead embrace the wisdom that comes from God. So, the idea of all of us speaking the same thing and there being no divisions among us and being perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment that's not possible by human means. 
You get three people, even two people, into a conversation and having them entirely agree about everything is not going to happen. So there's got to be something else going on here besides just arguing it out until one person gives in and gives up. It's not reasonable, excuse me, for everyone in the church to achieve, let alone maintain, this level of perfect unity in mind and judgment. It's impossible. It's impossible for us. But it's not impossible for God. And so whenever God commands something that seems to be unreasonable or impossible, it is because it is impossible for us to do apart from him. So that's that's the thing. We're not apart from him. So it's doable, but only doable because he is in us, working in us and through us. And that's going to be the solution. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 48, Jesus says to his disciples, Therefore you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. How can I be perfect? Well, you can't. But Christ in you can be perfect. Now, All of this is unpacked for us in many different epistles in different places. And at the very least, we can know for sure that when we see him, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. So if if nothing else, there's a point in time in which we see Christ as he truly is. And then what Jesus says here, you shall be perfect. In the meantime... There's going to be a whole lot of walking in the Spirit that has to be done. God's standards do not change just because they are impossible for us. When God sets the bar really, really high, it's not our place to say, well, that's not reasonable, that's not realistic. Uh, You know, not having sex until you're married, that's not realistic. That's not reasonable. How could anybody do that? We don't lower the standard. When God says, do not steal... You know, do not lie, bear false witness. God doesn't change his standards. What we have to do is rise to those standards by the power of the Holy Spirit and rather than our, in our own strength. When things seem unreasonable, it's because God is inviting us into partnership with him to accomplish these things in our day-to-day lives. So Paul is going to use this unreasonable demand of absolute unity within the church to teach us what it means to be spiritual as opposed to being carnal. And in doing so, he takes quite a long time. The wisdom of man is foolishness. I'm going to read for you now through one and a half chapters that follow. Okay, And I'm I'm going to try not to stop and comment on, on it because I want you to just see the flow of Paul's argument and understand that he's still talking about the unity of the church all the way through. Okay, so let's see what, what we find. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? 
Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer, that's the debater, of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. Now we're going to go through and unpack all of this in the weeks to come. Okay, So right now I'm just reading it to you and, and let the Spirit of God just kind of open your eyes to, to follow the chain, the train of Paul's thought here as he is making his case for how to overcome the disunity in the local church. So he says, has God not made foolish the wisdom of this world? Now this statement, for since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For Jews request a sign, and Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. That's no sign to the Jews to have their Messiah crucified, right? And to the Jews, a stumbling block. Uh, and to the Greeks, foolishness. So we have Christ crucified is a stumbling block to the Jews who are seeking a sign. And it's foolishness to the Greeks who are looking for something that makes sense. That's, makes, that's wise. But he says, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And God has chosen the foolish rather than the wise of this world. And so, for you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things that are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised. God has chosen. He's not just making do with these things. He has chosen them. Wow. And the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, that as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. Now has Paul gone off on a rabbit trail here? Or is he still teaching about how it's possible to be in the unity, in, in the unity of one mind? Let's see. God's rejected human persuasion as well. And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness, in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, 
that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. However, we speak wisdom among those who are mature, yet not the wisdom of this age, nor of the rulers of this age, who are coming to nothing. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom of which God ordained before the ages for our glory. Now the word mystery, uh, we need to understand in the New Testament, means something that had been hidden for a long time and now has been revealed. It's not a mystery in the sense of a whodunit. You know, it's not a mystery in the sense of, oh, that's mysterious, it can't be understood. No, it can be understood because now it has been revealed. It had not been revealed before. It is a mystery in the sense that now it has come to our understanding. So, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory, which none of the rulers of this age knew, for had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. And so we come to what is the alternative. God has given us the Holy Spirit. But as it is written, I has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed them to us through his Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. For what man knows the things of a man except the Spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received, not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. It is only through the Spirit of God that we can truly know and understand the things of God. That's the argument Paul's making. Now, man's wisdom is not spiritual. These things we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. But he who has who is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is rightly judged by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. There it is. Being of one mind can only be accomplished by having the mind of Christ. And that mind of Christ is revealed to us by the Holy Spirit, taught by the Spirit. Now, anything other than the mind of Christ, as revealed by the Spirit through the Scriptures. We're now living in a time in which these things have been written down and we have the Scriptures. So Paul is saying these things while the Scriptures are being written. We are reading them after the Scriptures have been not only written, but also canonized to where we know what is scripture and what is not. So, 
anything other than the mind of Christ, as revealed by the Holy Spirit through the Scriptures, is the carnal wisdom of this foolish world. Now, we strive as Christians to write and to speak the things that are faithful to the mind of Christ and the Spirit of God and accurate in according with Scripture. But we know there's a difference between what we write and what was written as Scripture by the apostles. Now let's keep going. Man's wisdom is carnal. And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual people, but as to carnal, as to babes in Christ. I fed you with milk and not with solid food, for until now you were not able to receive it, and even now you are not able, for you are still carnal. For where there are envy and strife and divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? For when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not carnal? Do you see, there's the, there's the, there's the boom at the end. Envy, strife, and divisions are carnal. You Corinthian Christians are being carnal. You need to be spiritual. And in order to be spiritual, you need to let go of your own human reasonings. Stop comparing one apostle or missionary to another. And instead, embrace the mind of Christ, which is going to begin with humility. Let this mind be in you, which also was in Christ Jesus, who humbled himself. Now, we're going to get into all of that later. Paul did not go off track during this entire chapter and a half here. He was still writing about that same verse 10, the unity of mind, the unity within the church. That's what he's focused on. So the unity that God requires of us is not found in man's wisdom, which is carnal, but rather it's found in being spiritual. And when we see strife and envy uh, and divisions, it's because we're not walking in the spirit. We are not in the mind of Christ. We're in our own human understanding. In the chapters that we have just read, in the weeks to come, we're going to unpack Paul's doctrine of what it means to be spiritual as opposed to being carnal. Now, there are, there's a ditch on both sides of this road, okay? There's a ditch of being too academic, too mental, and there's a ditch of being too spiritual, too mystical, because these things work together. We have the scriptures and we have the Holy Spirit, and we need them both. For now, the, win the unity of Christ's church is not a carnal unity based on man's wisdom and human reasoning. But rather it is a spiritual unity based on the working of the Holy Spirit in the body of Christ as each of us receive the mind of Christ through the written word of God which is illuminated by the Holy Spirit. Now, I know that's a long sentence and you might have gotten lost somewhere in the middle of it. But let's just kind of simplify it with this. We need both the map and the guide, not one or the other. 
The churches have been divided among, oh, we are, we've got the map, so we don't need the guide. And the others will say, well, we've got the guide, so we don't need the map. And so you have abuses and mistakes on both sides. This doctrine confronts us with some strong meat. Walking by the light of the Spirit rather than walking by the light of our own carnal understanding will require us to reject our own human reasoning ability and our own oratorical ability to instead embrace the foolishness of putting our faith in an unvarnished, unimproved upon gospel. Does that make sense? Can you see it? Obeying Paul's command to agree will not be possible by our own carnal wisdom. If we get ourselves into a room and all try to figure out, okay, what is, what's true and how can we just all agree with that, it's just going to deepen our divisions. We're going to find ourselves going off and starting separate denominations. But God intends for us to arise above all of that and to be able to get the mind of Christ. Jesus' mind is not divided. Okay? The mind of Christ is not divided. We need to walk in the Spirit, in light of Scripture, to have the mind of Christ. So we read it again. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 10. Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and the same judgment. This command can only be obeyed through the spiritual wisdom that God provides for us when he gives to us the mind of Christ by the Holy Spirit through the word of God. That's where I stand. We will need both the map of scripture and the Holy Spirit as our guide in order to come into true unity. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your wisdom. Help us, Lord, to rise above and to walk away from our own carnal understanding and instead embrace the reality that you know all things and that as we step into that realm, we can be in unity with one another because we are in unity with the mind of Christ. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.